0: The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning. Hey, welcome to Trinity. It's really good to see you. I'm glad you're here. We are starting a new series, a sermon series this morning that we're really excited about to get into. We just finished a 14-week series on the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, and so we thought we would just take on something really light and easy. So we're going to be talking about money for the next 6 weeks, something far more straightforward. I never thought I'd be relieved as a pastor to just be talking about something so easy as money and possessions, but relatively speaking much more straightforward, and I'm super excited. For this series. Uh, if you ask why, why this series, why are we going to spend the next six weeks talking about Jesus's words on money? There, there are a few reasons. And first of all, we as a church are, are devoted and we believe the goal of our lives is to become like Christ. That's, that's why, why we are here. That's, that's the purpose of our lives, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, his character, and his lifestyle. And that means, among other things, that we want to embrace everything that he teaches. He knew how to live life in this world, and so we want to pattern our life after him and embrace everything that he has to teach. And Jesus taught on money quite a bit. If you add it up by verses, Jesus spent about 15% of his teaching content on money. And, and it shouldn't be surprising because the Bible across the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is, is constantly talking about money. Uh, there are 2,350 uh, verses on money, according to scholars with a lot more free time than me, apparently. But well, that is more than twice the number of verses on faith and prayer combined. And so Jesus talked about money a lot, but even more than that, what he said about money was incredibly significant. When Zacchaeus told him he was going to give half his money to the poor poor and repay all that he cheated, Jesus responded to him, today salvation has come to this house. On the other hand, when the rich young ruler said that he wanted to receive eternal life and that he had kept the entire law, Jesus told him to give away everything he had and follow him and the rich young ruler left without Jesus and without salvation. In our passage we just read today, Jesus says, You can be devoted to God or money, but not both. And, and Jesus warns us about a lot of things, but he reserves his strongest teachings for, for this topic of money. Well, there's nothing else that he, that he puts on the same par with worship and salvation, it's just money. And so Jesus talked a lot about money, what he said was incredibly significant. But if you need a third reason, we certainly live in a much more money-oriented consumer culture than he did, right? I mean, if you compare 21st century America to to first century Israel, for sure we are much more money-oriented in our society. You can think of it just in terms of of, of across our globe. I, I looked it up this week. The average annual household income across the globe is $12,000 per year. Uh, Individual income is $9,000. But the federal poverty line in our country for a family of four is $30,000 this year. So poverty here is still two and a half times the global average. And so if money was an incredibly important topic 2,000 years ago, and I, and I want to show today that it, it was, for Jesus, according to Jesus, the most significant issue in our spiritual formation, I mean, how much more will that be true for us, living in this, this consumer society that we're in? But I'll, I'll give you even one more reason, and this is more from the heart. I mean, in 16 years of, of pastoral ministry... I've just seen that, that money has a hold on our hearts in a way that nothing else does. I think so many of us are living with like a, a low-key, uh, a type of spiritual bondage in relationship to money. And so there's, there's no guilt, there's no shame here. If you struggle in relationship to money, if your whole body is, is tense and you feel like all your walls are going up right now, this is, you, are, you are safe and you are secure here. There is no, there is no shaming, none of that is coming down the line. Rather, we are are living in a crazy society, right? I mean, we've been basically brainwashed our entire lives. And even more, I know that every single one of us wants true freedom. You're here because you long for true and complete freedom in Christ. And it is possible, it is available, but only in Jesus. And so, as I, I said earlier this week, we're we're doing this series as as a sort of spiritual formation applied to money and possessions. We're not doing it because we're struggling financially as a church, you know. We're not. We're doing great. Things are growing, everything's fine financially beyond our projections and all that. We're also not doing this because we've got like some big campaign right around the corner. You know, there's no big ask on week 6 that you need to be prepared for. <laughs> now we're doing this for one reason, one reason only. And it's because there is no mature spiritual formation apart from a Christ-like relationship to money. There's no spiritual formation apart from a Christ-like relationship to money. So I want to pray for us, pray over this series as we as we begin six weeks looking at Jesus' teachings on money and Paul's as we'll look at later on. But let's let's pray together. Father God, this is. A topic we know is close to your own heart. We know that it's something that you are constantly trying to to teach us on, to to warn us about, to to shepherd us in. Father, we know that you are a good and a generous God, and that you have given us such a, a spacious place to live in this world. Even your limits and your laws are for our own good. Lord Jesus, you, you embodied the, the perfect way of life on this earth. You showed us how to be, be fully human and fully alive, and your relationship to money and possessions is it's challenging to us, but we trust you that you knew best how to live in this world. And so, Lord Jesus, would you compel us with your way of life in this place? And Holy Spirit, we pray for more of your presence and power. There are so many forms of resistance right now. There's spiritual warfare that's being waged against our minds. There's this crazy consumer culture that we've been in for most or all of our lives. There's even generational sin that's been passed down in our families, resistances that we've just developed without even realizing. Perhaps even our own relationship to money has been marked more by addiction than freedom. And so, Lord, as we enter this study, would you open our minds? Would you set us free? Would you would you bring down any resistance or barriers or walls that are in our hearts? Would you speak to each one of us individually so that we don't just think, I, I wonder what they have to say on this topic, or this will be really good for this other person to hear? But Lord, speak directly to each one one of our hearts convict and build up and encourage and comfort. Lord God, by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, by the way, I'm wearing glasses this morning because I couldn't get my contacts in because of allergies, but Mark said that it has a kind of accountant vibe, which works well today. In fact, I think all four of our pastors are wearing glasses this morning. That doesn't normally happen, but what does it say but that you can trust us your money's safe here. I mean, look at us. No one's having any fun. We're just we're just poring over the numbers. All right. There's three three things I, wanna, I want us to see this morning as we do kind of an overview. We're going to we're going to fly over some topics fairly quickly, but we'll come back to a lot in the coming weeks. The first thing I want us to see is that money is the primary threat to our spiritual formation. Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here Jesus is, is actually using a, a different Greek word. It's the word "mamonas." We often just translate it mammon. The original King James Version just leaves it as the word mammon. This is a different word than the common word for money in that age, which was just the word for silver. But Jesus only uses the word mammon a few times in the Gospels. He uses it here and then a few times in Luke chapter 16. And so this, this word money or mammon is, is packed and it's, it's full of meaning. It can also be translated riches or wealth. And the message Eugene Peterson leaves it as money, but he he capitalizes it. It's capital M, money, when he's talking about mammon. And one author, Peter Kreeft, he gives it this definition. Mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of value, with the intention to keep it for oneself, far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort. It is applied to markedly high desire for and pursuit of wealth, status, and power, it is, or rather falsely promises to be, a security blanket against change. It mirrors divine self sufficiency. And so Jesus makes this huge statement you cannot serve both God and mammon. God, or capital M, money. And like I said, we don't see Jesus doing this with anything else. It's, it's just the topic of money that he holds alongside worship of God. And, and he says, you can give your entire life to money or you can give your entire life to mammon. I mean, these are incredibly strong words coming from Jesus. And, and I love that quote because Kreeft says that mammon mirrors divine self-sufficiency. It, it's, it's a form of making us feel like we have the control and power of a, a little God. And think about that. There's, there's this false promise baked into the idea of mammon that if we have enough of it, if we have enough money, enough of the status and comfort and security that comes with it, then we'll be forever safe. We'll be safe from the storms of life. We'll be safe from anything we have to fear. We'll be safe from rejection from insignificance, from being a nobody. In short, if we have enough mammon, we will be like God. It sounds like the lie all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the snake came and said, you you can be like God, just take a little bit more for yourself. John Tyson, a pastor, says that mammon is the primary threat or competitor to our love for God. Mammon sets itself up as a god. Mammon is not a side temptation, but Jesus said it was the central threat and temptation. And so that's always been true. That was true in Jesus's day. That's been true for 2,000 years. But think for a moment about our own society. Think about how mammon-oriented we are in our culture today. I was looking into this uh, this week and I was looking at some of the history and then I just sort of focused in on, on the 1950s. Think about the 1950s. This was a time after World War II when America was just celebrating, relieved, manufacturing was taking off, the stock market was doing great, everything was going wonderfully in, in kind of that economic sense. And so I read one article that one of you sent me that, that at that point looked at the advances in technology and the way work was being done, and they said, we can actually now do the average work week in 15 hours. We are moving towards working far less as a society, which means that people will no longer be identified by their work, but rather they'll be able to spend more time with their family and will be identified by our relationships and the things that we like to pursue and value outside of work. And so, like, that was one of the options. Here's here's another option. The economist Victor LeBow said this in 1955. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And so there was a choice. You could work less and have the same amount and spend more time with your people, or you could just work and work more and grind harder and have a lot more, and you can spend more and burn it up, have more trash, And so, who, like, I don't even need to ask who won, right? Because we all lost. We were all losers when this question came up. I mean, just think about that. I mean, really, an, an active choice to just pursue consumerism as a way of life. And that's what we've inherited. Richard Foster has, has written what I think is the best stuff on spiritual formation and money, at least the best stuff that I've found. He's well known for his book, The Celebration of Discipline. He's a spiritual writer in the Quaker tradition. I remember reading Celebration of Discipline in our first year of marriage when we had a, a combined income of $26,000 and the most margin that we ever had in life financially. But what he wrote was, was truly life-changing for me in my relationship to money. He says, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in our contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. We are, made feel, we, are, we are made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they are worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves nor will we desire Christian simplicity. And so money is always the most significant threat to our spiritual formation, but especially for us living in the most mammon-consumed society in human history. Now, you probably feel this, right? I think we all feel this, and maybe in a little bit different way. I mean, maybe you have, have struggled just to make ends meet financially, Maybe you're still a student, maybe you have a, a lower-paying job, and you, you feel this need to kind of keep up with your peers. Maybe you find yourself in credit card debt, or maybe it's student debt that you've just not been able to get out from under from. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle of, of spending and you feel like you can barely save, and you don't, you feel like you could hardly give anything away. Maybe you're you're one of the few that actually has a, a pretty good grip on money and you you spend less than what you make and you earn enough and you're generous with your money, but even then you probably struggle with the identity side of it. Not to over identify with your salary and your expenses and your lifestyle. Well, this has been one of these things that has been true of us at, at any given moment. I mean, every time I've looked at our budget in the last 16 years, I've looked and thought, you know, this would be a lot easier with just a little bit more. Ever have that thought like just 5% more and man, all our problems go away. A year goes by, you get 5% more, 10% more. Man, all this would be a little bit easier with a little bit more. Man, it's so innate, it's so deep. Now granted, we're like triple tithing to Aldi right now. That's our main problem. Three boys were ordering granola bars like by the pallet. I'm like, man, my goodness, we are generous with Aldi. All right. So two things are true at once. We have been been brainwashed by this consumer culture. I don't think that's too strong of a word. And second, we have our own patterns that that are in many ways more of a pattern of addiction than freedom. It's both that we're being enslaved and that we are choosing addiction, but there is hope, right? Like there is true freedom. This is the second thing. True freedom can be found, but only in Christ. He says in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus is saying we are all treasure oriented, we're treasure hunters by nature. And so what are the things that we're treasuring? What are these these earthly treasures? What, What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the good life? You know, what, what, what do you think of if you think, if I had everything I ever wanted, what would that include? Almost certainly it includes some kind of earthly treasures. It could be success or status, comfort, entertainment, security, social connections, travel, health and fitness, the, the appearance of a, of a well-ordered life on social media, even normal things like groceries and a minimum of two carbon road bikes earthly treasures, we get so, so caught up in them. And Jesus is saying, look, these can all be gone in a moment. They can rust, they can dissolve, they can be devalued, they age, they're stolen, they're just gone in a moment. And as a result, I think we know this and feel this, that pursuing earthly treasures leads to constant worry and anxiety. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Can any one of you add a single hour to your life by worrying? But notice Jesus doesn't just say, don't store up treasures. He doesn't say, don't store up treasures. He says, instead, do store up treasures in heaven. It's interesting, and and what what are these heavenly treasures? He doesn't say explicitly in our passage, but Paul says something really similar in Ephesians 1. Right at the beginning of Ephesians, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then basically the rest of the chapter is him saying, here's what these spiritual heavenly blessings or treasures are. He says we're loved by God. We're blameless and holy before him. We've been adopted as children. Our sins are forgiven. We've been conformed to Christ's image. We've been given purpose in life. We're included in Christ's body. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We are promised eternal life with God. And he just goes on and on and on and lists like, I don't know, 25 things that we have in Christ. Eternal treasures available to us through him. And so in other words, we have love, joy, security, peace, strength, forgiveness, hope, relationships, spiritual power, all in Christ. And Jesus is saying, store these things up, get more of these things, increase your awareness of the heavenly treasures that you have. His message is not suppress your desires, like shove them down, just don't want the bad stuff, you know, just stop it. That's not what he's saying. That's never what he's saying. He's saying replace your desires. Desire something far better, something that will serve you much better now and for all eternity. I want to suggest there are two primary ways to live in relationship to money. And there's the way of the world, which is a a sort of deformation and a way of Christ, which is a reformation. And I've got two charts for you. I know you love these charts. This one's not hand-drawn, but you can go ahead and put that first one up. This is deformation. This is how we naturally think of money and possessions in our culture. And it begins with insecurity, because as Richard Foster says, if we lack a divine center in God's love, we need to make an identity for ourselves. The second thing that happens is what I call a vow of greatness where we say at some age, not out loud, but implicitly, I will be great. I will make my family proud. I will earn more than the people I went to high school with. I will not be poor. I will not get to the end of my life and have nothing. There's some kind of vow of greatness that we make. This leads to a life of overworking and overspending. We work too much to to appear great. We earn more and more. We overspend to keep up. And what is this but a life of comparison? We see what others have and we we need to match them or or exceed them. This leads to anxiousness, stress, and despair because it takes so much energy to keep it all going. And if if your definition of the good life is more, then by definition, you will never actually get there. Like if the goal is more, by definition, you will never actually reach that goal. And so the last thing is you can't possibly have any capacity for generosity. No room in your budget, but more importantly, no room in your own soul. Apart from God's love and Jesus, there is no deep center to our lives. And it makes sense that we instead have to craft a different center to our lives. Maybe other cultures have other centers that they come up with, but I think in our culture it's almost always money or money adjacent. But there's a second way, and this is the way of spiritual reformation, the second chart. This is how God's love reorients the way that we view money and possessions. And the first thing is that the love of God is now at the center. There was nothing at the center in the previous chart, but now the love of God is at the center of our lives, and it means that we have a radical security in Him. The second thing is instead of making a vow of greatness, we take a sort of vow of humility, that from this place of peace and inner rest, we vow to make our life about growing in Christ's image. This makes us value good work and simplicity. We, we view work as, as a gift from God. We try to find meaningful and, and satisfying and, and work that blesses others. And then we focus on simplicity when it comes to our spending and savings and possessions. This deepens the inner peace that we have. And we, we can live a life of non-comparison. You've made it off the, the hamster wheel of comparison and now you're you're able to live for eternity you're non-anxious because we know that this world is not our home it's not all there is we can seek first the kingdom and then the overflow of this is a radical generosity we give in a way that it actually lowers our standard of living and we are perfectly comfortable with that we give in a way that demonstrates real dependence on the lord Our money is always used to further that which is most important to us, and now we use it to further the kingdom of God and the good of others. This is all to say that God's love sets us free, not just in relationship to money and possessions, but in everything. It makes us secure. It makes us full of joy, full of peace. The striving is over. Thanksgiving is the posture of the Christian life. Jesus is saying there are two ways to live. One is marked by anxiety and worry and striving and burnout. And the other is marked by peace and a future of wholeness and hope and eternal life. And so money is the primary threat to our spiritual formation. That was the first thing. The second thing is that true freedom is found in Christ. And then here's the third and final thing. That true freedom is expressed in contentment, simplicity, and generosity. Verse 32, Jesus says, For the pagans run after all these things, food, housing, clothing, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He's saying when we discover true freedom in Christ, we become content. Our lives naturally move towards simplicity, and and generosity is the natural overflow of our thanksgiving. And so the first one's contentment. And, and when Paul was writing to, to Timothy and, and instructing them in how to lead this church in Ephesus, which was the, the financial center of the Greco-Roman world, he urged, them, urged young Timothy to talk about money with the people, urged them to be generous and to find contentment. So this is 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is real gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich in this world fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He's saying the pursuit of money, the pursuit of mammon, all that money can buy, it leads us to other types of evil and sin. It makes us do things we would never think that we would normally do ourselves. we saying you can have real gain in your life, and that is godliness with contentment. We might also say Christ-likeness with contentment. Because to be content is to receive whatever God has given to us with thanksgiving and trust. Now, contentment is expressed in the second thing, and that's a life of simplicity. Not feeding into the American frenzy of shopping and spending and throwing out and so forth. But simplicity means living within our means, within the, the boundaries that God has set for us. To only buy things we'll use and keep and not concern ourselves with, with riches and luxuries. See, so when we're not living from security in God's love, we think of money as, as it's all mine. I can, I can and will spend it on whatever will make me happy and safe. But if we have that, if we're already safe, if we're secure in God's love then this this huge shift can take place in our heart. The question goes from how much can I spend to what's the simplest and wisest way for me to live so that I can bless others with what I have. And that's the third thing, generosity. See, financial giving has always been a part of discipleship for God's people. In Leviticus, God commanded Israel to give at least a tenth of all their income to support the, the spiritual life of the people. Often Israel forgot this tithe, but it's interesting, whenever Israel experiences a revival, one of the first things that happens is that they reinstitute the tithe. Often they go far above and beyond it. In Second Chronicles 31, there was a revival under King Hezekiah. The people went out and smashed their idols and pledged to restore the tithe, to rebuild the temple, reinstitute all of its worship services. In the revival under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people pledged themselves to restore the tithe again so that the city of Jerusalem could be rebuilt, the temple could be restored again, and worship could take place. In both cases, Israel's tithing was not merely going back to to the law. It was that, but it was an overflow of generosity. In the New Testament, Jesus is, is continually taking the Old Testament law. He doesn't abolish it. He doesn't cancel it. He, he always personalizes it and deepens it. He always goes right to the heart of the matter. It's exactly what he does with money. His goal is not to merely turn Israel back to the tithe, but to get God's people to give to God that which bears God's image, the whole thing. Now, tithing was basic obedience to the law, but mature spiritual formation is, is overflowing generosity. It's not about an amount, it's about a posture. This posture of generosity is described in 2 Corinthians. Paul's talking about the Macedonian church, and he says, in the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy, in their overflowing joy, they gave as much as they were able, able and even beyond their ability. Each of you then should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And this is getting at the, the heart of giving for the believer. That it, is an, it is an overflow. I love that word, that the, the word of God builds up in us, the love of God overflows out of us, and contentment, simplicity, and generosity is what comes out. And these three things, they're not uh, three steps. You take one and then the other. Like you have to be content and then you'll live simply, and then you can be generous. But rather, these are three interconnected virtues. And often, as we talked about before, our our hearts don't dictate our actions as much as follow our actions. So the way to contentment is often by beginning with the other things, the simplicity and the generosity. True freedom comes as we let go of our compulsive need for getting and keeping. One pastor, Kent Hughes, has said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. He's saying every time we give to, to the poor, to the church, to the mission of God, to others, we are dethroning money in our own heart. The more we do it, the more we dethrone money, the more we reform our hearts around Christ. And so money is a central issue for us as believers. True freedom is possible, but only in Christ. And this true freedom is expressed in contentment, simplicity, and generosity. The whole point of this series is to say, choose freedom. Like you have a couple options, choose freedom. Choose the one that doesn't lead to bondage, but it leads to true and everlasting freedom. Look to the pattern of Jesus. Recognize the insanity of this world's approach to money. Recognize the eternal riches that we have in Christ. And every day, day after day, walk in step with Jesus, choosing Christ-likeness with contentment. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us to not leave us to our own devices, to not leave us where we are, where we would be apart from you. But in the ultimate act of generosity, you sent your own son into this world. And Jesus, you yourself gave up your very life, the the ultimate act of sacrificial giving. You laid it down for us. And so, Lord, we we come to you with, with the struggles of our own hearts, Maybe there's things that are hidden in our, in our hearts and minds that, that we've not let anybody else into. Lord, would you begin to soften our hearts? Would you shine your light into the dark places where the light has not yet arrived? Even for us who are believers, this is often one of the last things that changes. It's called the last conversion, the last thing before we finally give ourselves to you. Lord, only you can do this work in us. Would you reshape our hearts? not just for the simplicity and generosity, not even just for, for the contentment that comes with it, but that we might experience true freedom and that your kingdom might continue to go forward in a, in a beautiful and a rich way and in through our own hearts. Lord, I thank you for this incredibly generous church, this church that is, is so moved to action and generosity anytime there's a need. We say, Lord, would you deepen those roots in us? Would you pull up any of the, the roots that have, that have developed over time and, and come out of this consumer society? Would you pull up any roots of, of greed or envy or anything else that's in us keeping us from you? Instead, would you bury the real treasure deep in our hearts that we might overflow with thanksgiving before you, Lord? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.